0: This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola, soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf.
1: And I'm Madeline.
0: Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how arts, culture, and creativity, especially as applied by young people, can change the world, one community at a time. You're invited each week to learn and laugh while exploring the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Welcome to this episode of the Why Change podcast. Jeff here with my co-host Ashraf hasham Ashraf, how are you doing? Here we are. It's November after Election Day. How you holding up?
2: Ooh, I'm doing great. Uh, I think Election Day was successful. <laughs> we got our ballots in a couple of days before. Put them in the little box. Um, and now I am calling in from Chicago, where I just happened to be um, for a few days. I'm going to hang out with other co host Carla, later on this weekend. She was on the cover of the Chicago Reader, yo. It was so crazy to see her face when I first got here.
0: <laughs> I love that. Well, I had the pleasure of hanging out with here in my hometown in Washington, D.C., uh, which is uh, such a privilege to be able to do, especially because I feel like the last couple of uh, recordings, I have been on the road in other places, so it's nice to be home and it's nice to share time with Carla and share time with you here live on the podcast (laughs) so tell me you had another I think your final conversation in your Mm -hmm. series talking to disruptive philanthropists so who'd you talk to this time
2: Yes um so today we're going to be talking about my conversation with Angelique Power of the Skillman Foundation in Detroit Michigan USA and uh formerly of the Field Foundation in Chicago here where I am now. Uh it was an awesome conversation, supernatural, I think. Um we got through a ton, a lot of follow-up questions, a lot of just like bits and uh, and dives and and um and and slides into different sub stories within stories. It was just a perfect conversation to capture. I think on on voting day um, of all days.
0: That well, that is something that we'll certainly need to discuss because I'm very curious how everything you talked about in this uh, interview connects to what actually happened in real life post voting day. So why don't we take a listen and we'll come back on the flip side. <laughs>
2: Hello, hello, Why Change listeners. Welcome, uh, Angelique Power, to the podcast.
1: Hi, I'm so excited to be here.
2: Yay, I'm thrilled to introduce you to our listeners. Um, Angelique, I'm going to do a little bio and then we can get into it. Angelique is the president and CEO of the Skillman Foundation in Detroit, Michigan, USA, which invests in the brilliance and power of Detroit youth. The Skillman Foundation supports efforts to strengthen Detroit's educational system, advance racial justice, and promote youth power. And we're going to talk about that quite a bit uh, in the conversation to follow. I've known about Angelique since about 2017 or so when I spent some time in Chicago uh, where she was president of the Field Foundation and making waves uh, in the the sector with an initiative called Enrich Chicago, um, which dedicated to anti-racist organizing in the nonprofit sector. I learned about it in the arts and culture field where I think there was a lot of momentum. During her tenure at the Field Foundation, she designed a journey with staff, board, and nonprofit partners for central racial justice, changing how it funds and who it funds, and created accountability structures for community to review the work of the foundation, rethought the metrics, created heat maps, uh, and updated its investment policy. Under Angelique's leadership, the Field Foundation doubled the size of its giving and its programming and added new f- streams of funding for individuals and for-profit media organizations, which I know in Chicago, um, there's quite a bit of that work happening. So um, thank you for that work. Um, but Angelique, tell us about you and yourself, how you got to where you are today, and the role of arts education in your come up
1: yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be in conversation with you um, and part of the Why Change podcast. Arts education has been a part of my upbringing. Um, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I grew up in Hyde Park. Well, first in Bronzeville, which is a cultural mecca inside yeah. of Chicago and then in Hyde Park. Um, from the time that I can remember, I was involved in, music and dance and um whether that was you know jazz played in our living rooms whether that was learning the flute and piano being in plays uh you know I have to stop telling this story but I remember (laughs) cutting school and and the museums were free in Chicago at that time. And so I remember in high school like cutting a class and going to the Museum of Science and Industry or to the Art Institute and um, you know, that, so the arts have always been sort of a part of the background of how I made sense of the world, how I escaped from things, and also um, just how I expressed and how my family expressed it, ourselves.
2: Incredible. Tell us more about, um, about that Cutting work. School. Yeah, specifically I'm like modeling that for the young people that you work with now. I'm sure they love hearing about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's edit. Let's edit quickly.
2: <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of, you um when you came to Skillman, uh, when you got to Detroit in 2020, um, you created a youth council, or maybe there was a youth council existing, but maybe in a different form. Tell
1: us about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So um I am coming to you from the beautiful and sparkling black and brown city of Detroit, Michigan. Mm. And um, we'll talk a little bit about why I came here from um, another beautiful city of Chicago. But uh, Detroit is a majority black and brown city and it's also a young city. The median age here is 34. And so one of the things that attracted me was when I started, I knew um, Skillman has been uh, working with young people for over 60 years and that there was a president's youth council that had been established that was really, you know, this was during the pandemic. It was 2021. They were zooming in um, maybe quarterly. I think they had met twice and were being asked their opinions on like, what do young people think and what do young people need? They were the very first meeting that I had before I started at Skelman. I was like, get me to this youth council. And probably 10 minutes into the conversation i was like oh hold up this is gen z which i'm happy to talk more about um they don't want to just talk you know like they have big ideas they are entrepreneurial they are intersectional in how they view problems and solutions and they are champing at the bit actually to be able to Not have a seat at the table, not have a piece of the pie, but, you know, have market share in the bakery and and start directing operations. And Mm. so um, that was something that I realized pretty quickly. We absolutely needed to I needed in order to know how to do my job. I actually needed them to guide me.
2: Wow, to be part of the solutions um, that your foundation works within sounds like the perfect role for young people in a foundation dedicated to young people. Tell us more about Skillman and how it got to be uh, how uh, how young people a part of how young people thrive in Detroit.
1: Sure, and I I know that you've been having conversations with different types of foundations, and so private independent foundations are often started by uh, individuals, high net worth individuals. and, uh, you know, you can argue about why foundations are started, but there was a woman named Rose Skillman. And her husband made a lot of his money through 3M um, based mm-hmm. in the Twin Cities. They moved to Detroit and they never had children and they actually love children and young people. And so um, after her husband died, Rose spent a good portion of her time dedicating her resources and her time to young people and to animals. Actually, that was a big part of it too. And so um, I think the biggest gift that an individual who decides to give their entire estate away um, the biggest gift that they can give in addition to the money is an open sort of interpretation of how that money is used. And so it is both very specific that they want, Rose wanted the money to go to young people. Um, and it's a- also broad enough so that it can continually be made relevant by whomever is running the foundation. And so um, throughout Skillman's history, there has been a focus on Detroit young people. And sometimes that's manifested in um, what was called the Good Neighborhood Initiative. So there was 10 years, Skillman committed $100 million over the course of 10 years to six neighborhoods inside of Detroit. And what's important to to realize for those who don't know Detroit or who haven't been here, Detroit is in some ways um, iconoclastic, in how it operates. And in other ways, it is very much uh, the story of many industrial cities that were like raised and were boom towns around a specific industry. Um, And so at the time that the Skillman Foundation really started to focus on neighborhoods was a time when other entities that could give out capital were not focused on neighborhoods. And so going deep and being a funder that was going to be embedded in different neighborhoods and really work with community-based organizations um, to try to create thriving family-centric neighborhoods was a pretty bold move of Skillman's. Um, One of the things that Skillman realized was that education is this passport. And that, you know, if people, wherever they live, have access to incredible educators who have autonomy to teach all the ideas um, and are supported by great principles and have wonderful infrastructure. And then young people can come and really through completing schooling can then choose a future that they want for themselves. And understanding that um, when industry fell in Detroit, that people moved, that their property tax dollars moved with Mm. them. Um, that schools were this incredible link of how to unlock equity for a lot of young families and young people, and so a big focus on education started to happen, um, and a move from just you know the the neighborhood focus to a specific focus on schools started to happen at Skillman too. Um, I arrived in 2021, and you know, the pandemic was going on, the racial justice summer of 2020 um, was for some an awakening, for others a culmination. Um, And I think that every institution worth its salt was looking at all of its practices and policies and saying like, we have to do better. Um, And I think so many of us uh, became adjunct faculty in our children's education. And Mm. we started to realize like, ooh this is hard, teachers are doing so much and they're recreating a classroom lifetime. How do we um, you know, allow this pandemic to not only make us be real about racial equity, um, but also allow us to reinvent these systems that are, are failing black and brown people, are failing black and brown young people. And so that is the moment that awaited me at Skillman.
2: Wow. And you had done some work, um, I know, in uh, in the early COVID days to get folks kind of together to look at their assets, to look at what was available to them, to see who was being funded, where, again, the word heat map comes back up to me. Tell me more about that and how that led to your work at, at Steelman.
1: Yeah. So when I started actually at Field, um, we went through a process of rethinking our work with a racial equity lens. And you have to remember, this was 2016. And so, mm-hmm. you know, using terms like racial equity felt like you were, you just brought a grenade to a chess match, you know?
2: Totally, <laughs> totally, yes.
1: And so um, it was really um, important that we were able to translate the need for racial equity to a wide variety of people that may be new to those words and those concepts. The heat map. Mm-hmm was a way that we could do that visually. So the heat maps that are still on the Field Foundation website, um, what they did was they looked at um, areas of the city, which are primarily black and brown areas of the city in Chicago, that's the south and west sides. And we drew a red line around that study area, and um, then clocked things like quality of life. So we looked at things like what are the educational outcomes inside of that study area? There was like a 32% um, proficiency rate for um, uh, reading, I believe was the the marker, compared to a 67% proficiency rate outside of the study area. And then we looked at, well, where did the schools close? and 82% of the schools that were closed were inside of the study area um we looked at things like um uh um access to health insurance
0: mm-hmm.
1: um you know food deserts we started to put those things together and then we layered fields funding on top of it how much of our dollars are are we investing inside of the study area. And at that time, we found it was like 22% of our dollars. So the the premise was anyone who thinks that by happenstance, um, communities are struggling, are actually not aware of how exquisite the design of racism is. And they're not aware of our own complicity in upholding that exquisite design. And wow. it was a visual to tell that story.
2: And so as, as this was coming out, then, um, yeah, what happened? I know that this was a quick move. Um, I mean, early days of COVID felt like a long, 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 long time. Yeah. Uh, as that was happening, you were making this adjustment to go to Skillman. Tell me about how that, yeah, how that felt.
1: Um, I, I just want to thread the needle on the mm-hmm. heat map because oh, actually, yeah. the early days of COVID, the heat maps came back and... What um, what I what I was able to do was link arms with at that point twenty other foundations who were aware of Fields heat maps, and we wanted to update them. Um, so we started working together to share our own private data, and we brought in academic institutions and researchers and nonprofits, and we we updated the heat map to show not only the um inequities that were happening, but we then layered on some things like um, how much investment was going in incarceration in those same areas. Um, We shared private data from all foundations that shared how much of our own investments had gone into those areas in the five years previous to COVID. And then we had a slide that was like, since COVID began, here's how much money has actually shifted to go in this area to show that COVID actually allowed many foundations to operate differently, to remove these uh, laborious applications and restrictions, to think with a racialized lens of where our fund's going. And so we were able to create this piece, which is like, hey, we know how to do it, hold us accountable for it. And we layered in the CARES Act where it was going, SBA mm. loans where it was going, and things like that. So the concept was to take the um, heat map exercise and make it an interactive piece that any municipality could use to work across sectors to make sure that um, investment is always seen with a racialized lens and that it's long term.
2: Wow. My mind is blown because I work at a municipality uh, at the city of Seattle's Office of Arts and Culture, and I know we were were doing a ton of um, what seemed like innovative work. I mean, systems like municipalities, even foundations like you were part of aren't meant to work that fast, and yet, to your point. We were able to shift. Crises allow us to see what's uh, what is truly possible when we take away um, the urgency of the uh, of the design that is not there to benefit us all. Right, like you said, That's exquisite right. design to to allow us to continue to, to to flounder perhaps in our own making.
1: That's right. And so we have to understand the assignment now. Mm-hmm. We were not supposed to solve for COVID. Yes. COVID is just the the match that lights a tinderbox. It's always there. And so actually the assignment now, as we head into like inflation and um, not, you know, systems still remain inequitable, we have to keep that same urgency and ability to be flexible that happened during COVID. Um, yeah, you were going to say something.
2: Well, I was going to bring it back to to Skillman. Um, now that you're over there and, and I'm sure that, like I said, that, uh, that transition must have been um a big one. <laughs> not yeah. only were you doing this amazing type of work, you were also hoping to figure out how to get it to remain uh the way that it was over at Field as you were moving uh to to uh to Skillman. Tell me about
1: that. Yeah. So um, you know, I'm in Detroit and I always say like I'm a Chicagoan in Detroit. I don't try to front like I'm a Detroiter. Detroiters will not let me front like I'm a Detroiter anyway. No, they won't. <laughs> um, but through and through I'm I'm like Southside Chicagoan. I uh, loved the work that I was doing at the Field Foundation, um, loved the people that I was working with in in the Chicago community. It like runs in my blood. So um, no one was more surprised than I was to to fall in love with this opportunity. And um, a lot of it had to do with the pandemic that changed all of us realistically um, but you know, I remember working on the COVID mapping project and and being in my home and zooming all day and um, and something, you know I, I think it's because we all paused enough to just see this time when a black man was um, you know lynched by a, a police officer and that somebody filmed on an iPhone this latest lynching um i watched people pre-vaccine like race from their homes around the world and create these uprisings i wasn't out there i wasn't in the streets i was watching i had you know my kid that i was trying to help you know get through school i was zooming i was figuring out how to move bail money to folks mm. But I had been studying Gen Z and millennials for a while because there is a different approach to civil rights under Gen Z and under millennials. You know, the um, things that you're well aware of, the focus on collectivism, on co-ops, on sharing power in terms of like, you won't often see a hierarchical structure. It isn't a cult of personality. It is like a movement. Mm-hmm. Um, There is an economic awareness where people are thinking about, like, how do we um, look at who makes money off of inequity and try to tackle the economic systems in place? So I was already noticing this. And then I saw that these the greatest, the largest uprisings in the history of our country um, were being led by black and brown young people and what they were calling for wasn't just police reform or defund police or abolition. It was indigenous rights. It was climate justice. It was education justice. It was this intersectional understanding of issues. And um, in many ways, I was feeling helpless and hopeless at that time. And suddenly I was like, oh, I, I have to spend the rest of my days moving everything out of their way. Like, this is how we're going to get somewhere new. I have a place. My revolution is not in the streets anymore. It is in the suites these days. Mm -hmm. And I know who I need to follow. And I know what expertise looks like and what vision looks like. And so... When I was having conversations and conversations started in 2020, everyone was looking for a Black woman who understood racial equity. (laughs) And so I was having a lot of conversations with different places and also had a different idea of what my time on the planet is about, um, what success means for me. Success means like feeling like I can cook dinner and be around my family
0: Mm. and
1: that I can be in nature and in beautiful places and also make meaning of the time that i have on this planet and let young people lead me somewhere new so that is what brought me to skillman
2: wow what a beautiful story uh, and the way that you describe gen z so resonates with me and i'm sure it resonates with this community who listens to this podcast because um boy the intersectional way that they look at the world and uh and the fact that they know that their future is unwritten so much so that because they know that the world is changing so hard, the jobs that they'll have in the future, the way they'll stitch together an income, it does not exist yet. And mm-hmm. to have that freedom, uh, I think it is freedom. It's less of a freedom than a burden in my opinion, but um, the young people you talk to probably know more than I do, right? Are they excited by this moment or do they see the burden more than they see the the um, the freedom?
1: We did um, a study in Detroit where we talked to young people and we talked to them in the heart of the pandemic. And it was really to try to gauge hope, Mm. their sense of hope and their sense of agency. And overwhelmingly young people, black and brown, Gen Z young people felt a tremendous amount of power and hope and agency in their future. And it wasn't tied to grades. It wasn't tied to how, like, it wasn't tied to the pandemic. Um, It, you know, when I talk about Gen Z, I talk about them being born between 97 and 2012, being between 10 and 25 years old, and how one um, one in five identifies as LGBTQIA+, one in three knows someone who's non-binary. 48% are folks of color. Um, And more than that, what you were saying, they are like the integrity generation. They're not going to even spend their money a place Mm -hmm. that doesn't like uphold the values that they know are correct. And they are the largest growing economic power in our country. So um, I do think that their sense of agency is unlocked from how systems have failed them you know, this is also a generation that has seen school shootings, have Mm. seen uh, shootings around schools that never get reported on, that have lived through COVID, um, that have seen this like bifurcated, uh, you know, country um, and have seen political uprisings, racial uprisings. And I think that their hope and their determination um, isn't in spite of those things. I think it's because of them.
2: Wow. Oh boy. That gets me super excited about um about getting back in front of some young people and talking yes. to them about these things. Um I know that I was talking to some educators recently at um an art schools network conference in uh in Las Vegas and they're dealing with a ton of things right now that are very specific to their home areas, South Carolina. Um, you got to get permission to change pronouns, Got to you gotta get permission from parents to even call your students what they want to be called. Right. Yeah. And these are the restrictions that many, many folks have in front of them. Of course, Florida, the, um, uh, can't say gay, uh, legislation wow. can't even talk about young people's identities in, in this way. Um, Detroit, I know is different than all of those places. Um, uh, um, how is the city showing up for its young people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about that because, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a today's election day, when mm. we are talking. yes, so um, you know, we'll text tomorrow to <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to say, Catch how is it. Detroit showing up for yeah. for young people, for black and brown people? um um, in the country in general, I think we'll know better. But um, what I'll say is that there's a school board election that's happening right now. There are four seats that are open and there a fantastic organization here that are organizers and education justice organizers and many of them are young people, it's called 482 Forward. And they held with young people leading, they held a candidate forum um, so that people could understand. And there are folks who have been on the school board who were not amenable to passing things like for the LGBTQ student population. And, you know, they have to explain themselves. There's ARP dollars that have come in that have been, you know, determined to be spent in one way or another. I think it's a solomonic decision. I don't think there's like one clear way to go forward, BTW. Mm-hmm. Um, but young people are asking people, you know, asking school board members to explain their decisions. Um, and so, in many ways, I think the city of Detroit is unique. And I said iconoclastic earlier, in that you know the city in like 2013 was actually almost lost and was facing bankruptcy, and the schools were under emergency management. And it was, um, you know, anyone who has visited Detroit, every time you visit Detroit, you see a city that is in the midst of rapid change, and in some ways in a fight to retain its soul in the midst of rapid change. Um, But there is a visceral memory here of almost losing a city, there's a visceral memory of what happens when garbage trucks don't come, or you call the fire department and you have to wait. And so it's kind of all hands on deck. There's a saying here, Detroit versus everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means is like Detroit versus the non-believers, because the people who are here, they're not down with political theater. They're down for to create a city that is equitable, that works for everyone. Um, so it's really actually an electric place to be right now. And so many young people are leading the change here.
2: Wow. Action oriented. Like you said, the it sounds like the city itself and the young people in the city have the same goal. It almost Mm -hmm. seems like the city is a young city in that way Mm -hmm. um, since it's been growing uh since you've been around it and certainly have been been around it longer than you've been in it uh right you have a little bit of history in michigan as well
1: i do i do i mean you know my mother my parents have both passed but my mother was a chicago public school teacher and my father was a chicago police officer um and i'm the youngest of six and so um actually yes i do have a long history with michigan um My mother was a a school teacher and my father was a police officer. Um, she had her summers off and he was furloughed every August. So, um, when I was pretty young, they bought like a, a small cottage in Western Michigan and we would go there all the time. We'd spend summers there and every weekend there, that was what vacation meant to us. And so, um, you know, we grew a lot of our own vegetables. We had blueberry bushes and, um, and so, and, and actually my sister Lisa and I both went to university of Michigan when it was time to go to college. And, um, and then through my work at like different foundations and, um, I actually worked in Detroit a lot since the nineties. So I visited Detroit in late nineties, um, in late '80s, in mid 2000s, and um, have spent a good time amount of time visiting these different Detroits throughout time, um, and I'm so grateful. So in some ways, it's it's there's a nostalgia here um, in terms of even just the leaves changing and what it feels like to be in Michigan.
2: Well, that's so great. I'm sure, um, and it sounds like you were sought after during. The post-post George Floyd and post-racial justice reckoning. I'm so glad that you ended up back in Detroit. Um, We just had a guest on this podcast named Jonathan Cunningham, who had his uh, who grew up in Detroit and cited Grace Lee Boggs as one of his um, one of the people who he learned from, a a real true teacher. And he talked about gardening and how that became um, a real act of activism, but also an act of creative expression too, and an act of of joyful joyful rebellion um, against the systems that were out there trying to crush them. So um, thank mm-hmm. you for telling us that story about uh, that had to do with gardening and being in Detroit when all of that, um, all of the sort of foundations in which you're walking now um, were laid.
1: That's beautiful. Yeah. Tell tell Jonathan to come on home to Detroit.
2: Yes. i got to get you all connected. You know, Jonathan works for a community foundation, a Seattle foundation, and you work for Skillman. You mentioned that it's a private foundation. Um, anything else you want to say about the differences between those foundation types?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would love to to know more about your conversation, because community foundations, you know, they are in many ways, many entities in one, Um, having the donor advised funds, having their own grant making that they do. they also are able to work with lobbyists and to work actively on policy changes in a way that private foundations cannot. Mm. Um, So I'm just always really curious about, um, you know, there's a tension there in terms of like who's money and who's directing it, but there's a freedom there because so much, there is no neutrality really in, in foundations. Um, And so a lot of what you know, we have been talking about at Skillman, we've gone through like a really uh, big year of listening and doing a community embedded strategic plan. Um, and so a lot of what we're asking about ourselves about is like, what do we, we we're talking about systems change, um, just like racial equity systems change, these are words that are overused and misunderstood. And so what does equitable education system change mean? What does it look like? What is the role of the public sector in systems change and policy? What's the role of organizers and advocacy in systems change? Um, Those are a lot of the questions that we're having internally.
2: I'm glad you mentioned that because... um... One thing that's also said a lot is operationalizing racial equity. And this is work that you have done, I think, the more most authentically than I that I've ever heard about it uh, ever um, in terms of what you've done in Chicago that you've talked about earlier in this podcast. And then now that you're doing in Detroit, I mean, certainly listening is one big, big, big part of operationalizing racial equity. Tell me about this community embedded strategic plan and how you are operationalizing racial equity within the foundation you work with, and particularly I'd love to learn about what you have learned and what you want to share with folks who are working on this actively right now.
1: Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, You know, I always think of uh, the work of racial equity and operationalizing it as this sort of daily act of how you um, have a, an awareness that the systems that if left unattended, they have the same results, which contribute to inequity and are racialized. So it kind of starts with understanding that, um, and that the work is never done. Um, you know, I always say like, I don't know if racial equity in philanthropy is an oxymoron or not, Mm. like, can it actually, um, you know, can you share power and can you uh, shift resources if you're always sort of an elite group of people who are not most proximate to uh, the work and the issues that are making decisions on behalf of others? Like, I don't know. Um, but, you know, shorthand, racial equity is showing receipts. Mm-hmm. Like, That's kind of it. You've got to, you know, your, your racial justice is is making sure that you recognize power in communities that are leading their own revolutions and movements toward change. Mm. And so for philanthropy, it's funding movements in marginalized communities where they are the leaders of everything. And they are working on a longer schedule because that is how change works. And they're working on a movement. Yes. Yes. Racial equity is really about... um, Examining current systems and looking closely at your own, so the philanthropic system, looking how money moves, um, who makes decisions, and what sort of transparency and accountability is around those pieces. So conducting a racial equity audit is a really simple, easy way to look at how you spend every penny, And so one of the things that we did when I started was, first of all, like study our terms. So as a larger community with our trustees and with our staff, we brought in Lori Villarosa, who um, many of you may know, who runs uh, uh, pre-philanthropy and racial equity. And she talked with our trustees and we really... um, looked at like what is the difference between racial equity and racial justice and how do you make that real we conducted a racial equity audit we looked at the last three years where every penny has gone from our grant making to our operations to our endowment and that's like where the action is Mm -hmm. um and we are actually releasing our racial equity audit we're releasing it um Probably by the time this podcast comes out, it will be released. So skillman.org, you can um, see this tool and read about it. Um, And we're releasing it not because it's like a good news story and it's a press conference, racial equity ain't a press conference. Mm -hmm. Um, We are, it's not, it's not a statement you make. It's not a press conference. It is, we're releasing it because we have work to do. And there is little accountability in philanthropy, but there are tools that we can offer that community can use to hold us accountable. And racial, a racial equity audit is one of those tools. And so we will come back and report annually on where we are with these things and decisions that are being made and what it looks like. Um, so that's a piece of it. That's that's one piece. It's also culture. It's how decisions are made internally. Who's who serves on your board Um, Mm -hmm. by early December, we'll have some exciting new announcements we'll be making about our board and our committees. It's what are the roles and who makes decisions internally? Um, We have some exciting new staff structure that we're rolling out um, in the new year as well. Um, It's who you fund, it's how you fund, it's how you recognize their power and expertise In designing what the grants look like. So, you know, I can get going on all of this. Um, But that I think is our job that if we are committed to this mission, if we are not underpinning everything with racial equity, then we're working against ourselves.
2: Oh, that's beautiful. And what I love about this too, is that one sophisticated piece of racial equity work is not uh, like you said showing the receipts but really it's it's coming back to your community and letting them know what you've done with the information that you gathered with them from the listening sessions that you've done from the community embeddedness that you have um you have been part of to go back and continue going back and letting them know that this is what we've done with the amazing uh, words that you've given us the the feedback that you've given us how can we model it better? Um, That takes such a, um, such a courageous and brave leader to do so. And so I just want to thank you for being in that space of vulnerability. I think that's, that's something that, um, that I'm certainly taking away from today is is that, that role of the leader in, in making this happen.
1: Thank you for that. That means a lot to me.
2: Um, I know we're close to the end of our time today, and we got through a number of things. We talked about um, you and how you got to where you are, the role of arts education in your work, the Youth Council at Skillman, Gen Z at large. I'm excited to hear the comments um, from our listeners about that. Um, And then, of course, operationalizing racial equity. Um, We're going to do a little lightning round. How does that sound?
1: That sounds awesome.
2: All right, let's go. So question number one, who inspires you?
1: Um, I'm going to say young people, generation Z. They really, that's just the honest truth. Hell
2: yeah. And what keeps you motivated?
1: Um, The flip side. And if you could see like where I'm gesturing, it's a wall of ancestors. Mm. Um, My ancestors, they keep me motivated and they keep me focused and clear.
2: Where are you most at home?
1: Um, You know, I... I don't, I know I talked about my parents as like Mm -hmm. a teacher and a police officer. Um, I don't think I mentioned that my mother was white and Jewish and my father was black. And being black and Jewish was one of those things that I think defines me in terms of being a part of communities and apart from communities at the same time. Um, I'm most at home everywhere. Like I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. I'm comfortable, like being the one that's different, you know, <laughs> in any space. And so it doesn't matter like with whom or where I am. I'm comfortable in my skin.
2: Mm, beautiful. How do you stay focused?
1: I don't know if I'm always focused, you know. Uh,
2: yes. Tell <laughs> it like it is.
1: Um, I'm present. I, I try to stay mm. present in the moment.
2: And finally, why change?
1: Um, Because status quo is a slide into inequity. It Mm. hasn't been working for many of us. And we have a limited time that we're alive on this planet. And bringing our full selves in this exact moment is what's going to change the next hundred years. So, you know, that's why we have to do what we're meant to do while we're alive.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you so, so, so much, Angelique. It's been so great to have you. I'm excited to have you back in a little while telling us how these things have been going um, that you've been putting up in Detroit and how the community is accepting them or pushing back or doing what Detroit does. Um, so, thank you so, so, so much.
1: Well, you're awesome and incredible. And this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you.
2: Looking forward to it. And we'll get everything that we talked about in our show notes, including links and all those things. All right. Thanks again.
1: Bye.
0: And we're back. Okay, Ashraf. I I have no words. First, I <laughs> have so much respect for Angelique and the work that she does, the human that she is. I'm just so glad that she is on the Why Change podcast and that you got the chance to talk to her and that I got the chance to listen to the brilliance in that conversation. I took so many notes. I don't even know where to start. Um, Maybe let's start with election day and gen z and all of that what are your thoughts about what you all talked about and what actually happened yeah
2: so um boy there was a ton of research um that angelique has made possible and um, she of course keeps herself near um, young people all the time with this president's youth council um 50 years of it being around that's wild to learn about um Boy, um, I love how much she was like, you want to talk about Gen Z, let's talk about Gen Z. Because <laughs> she is like the only non-Gen Z person to actually know anything about Gen Z, it feels like. <laughs> um, yeah, gosh, I mean,
0: um, whew, so much. I mean, I think you should just probably go because you took more notes than I did. Sure, I, absolutely. I'm happy to do that. You know, I think it's amazing because this is a foundation that unabashedly supports the voice of young people. Their mission statement says the words youth power, which I just love that so much. And it's such a simple act, but such a bold move. Like institutions like big foundations don't do that, right? And I think that goes back to their very roots in saying that young people really are the solution, right? You have the founder, you know, or one of the founders of 3M that, you know, their family ended up donating their whole estate to the young people uh, of, of Detroit and, or Michigan, you know, and the impact that they're having is so tremendous. And what's so cool, especially here we are a few days after the U.S. election day, where Gen Z, you know, turned out, I mean, we saw our first Gen Z, um, person elected to Congress who's a survivor of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting uh, in Parkland, Florida. We saw uh, remarkable numbers of Gen Z um, at the polls voting on ballot initiatives, voting down ballot, voting for governors and uh, the House and Senate, you know, and this foundation is putting their money, they're betting all of their money on youth power and supporting those voices. And I think the moment for that investment to have maximum impact is right now and i just i get so excited because i cannot wait to see what is going to happen with these investments from this foundation through the work of the young people of detroit i just want to see what goes on it's amazing yeah and
2: the only bummer is that we have to wait uh 10 maybe 15 years until it really becomes obvious you know what the investments would be
0: right Um, that is true and i suppose i will wait But, you know, in the interim, I think it's really interesting because there's a couple of tactics that you all talked about that I'm curious, especially for you as a grant maker yourself, Mm -hmm. what you think. I mean, one of the things that stuck uh, stuck out to me was this idea that um, this generosity that the work that, that Angelique has done, both at the Field Foundation and now the Skillman Foundation how they how they just embed that in their practice, right? Like they're not hiding data, they're not um, keeping things to themselves, they're really just like open sourcing everything to help elevate the whole field and its impact. Uh, what is your response to that, I guess, in that that sector? I love it. I love it.
2: Especially how um, this is how Angelique shows up. This is how she uh, is an activist. She wasn't, as she said, in the streets. She was in the suites. Um, And and, uh, she was out there making sure that the young people calling for systems change, Indigenous rights climate change and justice, uh, justice for climate change, I should say, intersectional understandings of the world in general that Gen Z and, and Alphas and all the others have uh, that are going to be our leaders in the future. She she was fighting for them up in those spaces where she had power. And that's a, a theme across all of these conversations with the philanthropy disruptors that I was privileged to be able to talk to. Um, and then, like you said, tactical stuff too, right? Heat maps um, and how Angelique was able to start that process in Chicago in a very localized field, foundation space, and then scale it up. And and like you said, just generously share, open source this type of of, of work and, and how to do it. This is how you can do it. And that's really what I want to make sure we people walk away with with these conversations um is that this new generation of philanthropists, just like the new generation of Congress folks, shout out to Maxwell, Alejandro Frost, um is going to be ones that, that, that demonstrate collective power is the only way to go. We all want the same results. Clearly there's no use in keeping it to ourselves. We have to share and, and sharing is, is uh, one language of love, I think um, for, for our whole, our whole beings,
0: our whole humanity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that's embedded in that sharing is, and, and in that generosity, I guess that you're describing, like is this notion of of really understanding what our contributions can be from where we are in our journeys right you know in previous episodes we've talked about this concept of eldership and the, you know the definition that that i subscribe to of eldership is one that came from you know this study we did in 2020 that will attribute to um uh this um it was a, an anonymous person, so I'm, I'm figuring out how to say this, but I will attribute it to an indigenous leader, an mm-hmm. Aboriginal leader from Australia that leads a dance company. Um, and in this conversation, she said that eldership was being open to the multiple possibilities of truth. You mm-hmm. know, that is to say that that elders in our community have a responsibility to pass down the wisdom that they've gained over their lives, but mm-hmm. to recognize that that is highly contextual to the circumstances and the time period that they were in. And so there are truths that can be learned from that, but One of the roles of eldership is supporting the next generation in in sense making of that and navigating their own Mm. path. And I think Mm. that's really Angelique is just embodying everything about that. And I love it because it walks the walk and talks the talk, you know, beyond just, I don't know, uh, the giving of money, but true, like authentic collaboration intergenerationally and cross sectionally in the community and that's what's obviously leading to the outcomes that they seek to achieve in their work and you know it's working
2: yeah i i can tell that they share an understanding all the folks we're talking about share an understanding that um like angelique said power and the systems if left unattended will have the same inequitable results what did you call it a um, elegant design or or something um, something really <laughs> yeah. like
0: I wanted to say like elegant disaster, Um, but no, I think it was, it was along those lines for sure, because really the pervasiveness of, you know, racism and ageism and the patriarchy and things like that in our system, you have to like, get it out by the root.
2: Totally. And that's so, so, so tough to do. It takes, um, it takes a huge amount of self-awareness and an, and an important um, quality of, looking uh like being able to look in the mirror publicly right like that's a lot to take on that takes a lot of courage without a leader like angelique um uh, modeling that for the field i um I'm, i just guess i'm glad to say that,
0: that i'm glad that she's here doing it you know to model it 100 percent, and i think it's a it's an example that we can all learn from and live by and i think Knowing her too, she's so humble that she's probably cringe that we're spending so much time talking about her and, and uh, you know, and how much that we uh, adore the work. But I think it's, um, it is really important. And it's such a great conversation, I think, for you to end this journey on talking mm. to, of well, I guess I'll take that back. You're not ending the journey of talking to Disruptive philanthropists, But I think as a little series on the podcast, mm-hmm. you know, it's a wonderful uh, sort of apex in this conversation because there's just so much great work that's happening. But I think unfortunately these dominant narratives about how philanthropy occurs and the strategies of how we actually do philanthropy um, aren't up to date with the practices that, that have been shared here. And there's so much more work to do to, you know, flip the table, if you will, on the system. Yep. Um. So in a way, I sort of view this as a challenge and to think about what do we do next in order to upend the perpetuating problems that continue to um, take hold within our philanthropic sector.
2: Yeah, well, with uh, Darren Isom and uh, Celeste Smith, Jonathan Cunningham, and now Angelica Power, um, I definitely know that that uh, the future is in good hands and i know that they are there making sure that young people have everything they need to uh to be the change makers that we know they are and and clearly are showing up as right as mentioned with the uh conversation around voting and
0: the midterm elections here in the
2: usa Whew, it's a beautiful yeah. time to be alive
0: it is it is well ashraf thanks so much for sharing that conversation with us and we'll uh see you next time everybody Peace. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. All sources discussed in today's episode are located in the show notes. Be sure to tune in next week to see what else is happening around the world. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, be sure to write us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. Our show is produced and edited by Daniel Stanley. Our music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support. Hey all Jeff here. I want to tell you about a conference happening this coming February. It's the one I'm most excited to attend in 2023, the annual Beyond School Hours Conference. The Beyond School Hours National Education Conference will be held February 9th through 12th, 2023 in Orlando, Florida. Foundations, Inc., the conference host, is celebrating 26 years of supporting education professionals from across the nation, ensuring we help all children thrive in school and in life. This conference brings together thought leaders from across the country to collaborate for a greater impact. I can't wait to meet the amazing speakers, like Sonia Menzano, aka Maria from Sesame Street and the Foundation's 2023 Champion of Children, the award-winning journalist, Soledad O'Brien. The three and a half days of professional learning provides attendees like you and me with the much-needed tools and resources they need in order to provide support for young people in their communities. Learn more at beyondschoolhours.org. Again, that's beyondschoolhours.org. See you there.